Oh, my God. 
25 minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Friday, Erev Shabbos. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Hanging on the door, but there's nowhere to go. 
nowhere to be. Just an orphan in 1943. When they steal your soul and forget your name, there's a faith that just won't change. Like glowing lights behind the embers' flame. Break them free when I call your name. My silver set sail, cruising all through the night. The guards at the door try to put up a fight. They said, "Ain't nothing here for you people to claim." Every single kid here looks the same. When he shouted these words, the kids came alive. They could see the parents right in front of their eyes, grabbing the stuff without saying goodbye, kicking and screaming. They started to cry. recent album, I was privileged to have a great Hasidic children's choir join me, the Sheer the Shavach Boys Choir. They joined me on my album and some great hit albums. So please welcome Chaim Meyer Fliegman and the Sheer the Shavach Boys Choir.
We've been returned to Israel and are like dreamers. All the leaders of the world are trying to understand how, while our people flood back in from all the nations, and after centuries of tears, we see you, Hashem, in everything and await your warm embrace of full redemption.
Shabbat Shalom 
JM in the AM. Good morning. It's Friday. Erev Shabbos. How's everybody doing out there? My gosh. Raining here in New York, by the way. Yeah. Um, let's see. Go through some of the music you've been listening to so far this morning. Uh, Miami with Shalom Vaharenu. That is the uh, Shalom Yehuda Rechnitz selection with Maishi Menlowitz and company. Israel Bill Vavot, that amazing single. Opened up by uh, Simon Jacob, our chairman of the Jewish Unity Initiative, and of course, uh, Ohad and company on that one. Ufaratzda, done by Baruch Levine at a time for music, Hask 27. Shema Yisrael from Eighth Day, Eitan Freilich had Yom Zen, of course, Regesh with Modani opening things up. And we say good morning. It's a Friday. Welcome to a JM in the AM Friday. For this, ah, here we go. I knew I'd find it eventually. <laughs> for this December the 28th, day 20 of the month of Teves, the year 5779, Tufshin Ayan Tess, Zerif Shabbos Parsha Shmos, candle lighting 416. We're calling it 416, candle lighting on this Zerif Shabbos. 46 degrees outside with 96% humidity, winds of south at five miles an hour. Rain today in New York. High of 56, clouds early tonight, then clearing with a low of 49. Tomorrow looks like great weather where we are, mostly sunny in New York with a high of 52 degrees. Sunday the same, just uh, just colder out there. Right now, uh, 45 degrees in Yerushalayim. We're already up to 46 here in New York. Oh, it's raining in Yerushalayim as well, Baruch Hashem. Uh, 46 here in New York as we say good morning on a Friday, Erev Shabbos at JM in the AM. Uh, well, uh, just over an hour from now, it's our weekly update. Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He'll join us. If you love that segment and if you love Friday mornings in general, remember it's the last Friday of 2018. So please give generously. If you have not yet given during 2018 to JM and the AM and the Nachum Siegel Network, go to fjbunity.org, FJB for Foundation for Jewish Broadcasting fjbunity.org, and give as generously as possible. Again, that's fjbunity.org, and we thank you. Rabbi Yudin coming up later on about Parsha Shmos. Wrap things up at 9 o'clock. An encore of Table for Two between 9 and 10, and then, of course, Kedem's presentation of our Erev Shabbos show for Parsha Shmos. Thank you, Mark Zamek. And um, uh, 1 o'clock today, Parsha Shmos video blog by Harry Rothenberg. And then later on, of course, our Erev Shabbos music mix all the way until candle lighting brought to you by the wonderful people at Kedem. So there you go. That is our schedule for the day. I hope you'll uh, you'll make sure to stay tuned in as much as possible all day long and enjoy it right here at JM in the AM. More coming up. We've got, um, we've got um, a whole bunch of of amazing music, phenomenal selections, things that you'll love, including this one from Shlomo Kalbach. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos Parsha Shmos at JM in the AM. Sarah, 
میشه میشه حتی نتایی با یشلی یشلی ویسکه نازای میشه میشه حتی نتایی با یشلی یشلی ویسکه نازای میشه میشه حتی نتایی با یشلی یشلی Zikainim, Zikainim, Nois, Bireho, 
Leuten wird vermeschlich, er wird noch kommen, wenn wir vertrugen sich. Jeder einer Abendem Beten wird vermeschlich, er will schon kommen, er wird auf dir in mir. It will only happen when we all get along Everyone waiting for wishing praying for Mashiach Let's love one another Everyone in song
ever feel lonely? Did you ever feel lonely with people all around you? No one's found you.
It's the brother in you I've been looking for Cause I know we share family ties And all the world keeps telling us How you and I are really so alike It's not about the language or geography No connection to color, shape or size It's rooted deep in our history It's a spark that we carry inside If we join us one today J.M. in the A.M. Yaakov Shweki off of the album entitled Musica here at J.M. in the A.M. Ali Schwebel had We Are One. You heard Via Hafta done by Milo Cohen, Mordechai Ben David, and Od Yeshvu. Moshe, that's Ari Goldwagen, Shlomo Kalbach, Slimik Dasheikh opened up that set. 7 o'clock in the morning in America's one and only Jewish Moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and of course in the beloved NSN app. Golly, it's all in the background. We'll do our news from Israel coming up. It's Erev Shabbos Parsha Shmos, candle lighting 416 in New York. Um, Malcolm Honline, 40 minutes from now, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish organizations with the weekly update. Galaitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Friday is next. Boker Tov from Jamnam. Galaitzal, Asha Shtaim, Kan Mayarachlini, Mashakore Achshav. 
הוארך בחמישה ימים מעצרם של שני החשודים ברצח האישה שדיה מוסרטי אתמול ברמלה. השניים, 36 ו-34 תושבי רמלה, נעצרו אמש זמן קצר אחרי שהתגלתה גופת האישה. ידיעה שמסרה כתבתנו הדס שטייף. בעזה מתכוננים היום להפגנה ה-40 ברציפות לאורך גדר הגבול עם ישראל. מארגני ההפגנות קראו לתושבים לבוא ולהשתתף בהן. העיתון הלבנוני על עכבר טען מפי מקורות בחמאס כי ישראל העבירה מסר לעזה ולפיו היא לא רוצה אלימות. כתבנו לענייני ערבים ג'קי חוגי מציין כי בשבוע שעבר נהרגו ארבעה מפגינים מאש צה"ל, ההרוגים הראשונים מאז הפסקת האש שנכנסה לתוקפה לפני חודשיים בדיוק. בתוך כך, בלון חשוד הותר בשטח המועצה האזורית שדות נגב ליד גן ילדים. חבלני משטרה שהגיעו למקום נטרלו את המטען שנקשר לבלון. אין נפגעים ולא נגרם נזק, ידיעה שמסר כתבנו הצבאי צחי דבוש. נחשף תקנון מפלגתו החדשה של בני גנץ, חוסן לישראל, שנרשמה אתמול. סעיפי התקנון מעניקים סמכויות רבות לגנץ שיעמוד בראשות המפלגה בשנים הקרובות, אך תוגבל לשמונה שנים או לשלוש כנסות רצופות, המוקדם שבהן. עוד עולה מתקנון המפלגה כי ליושב הראש תהיה הסמכות לקבוע את עמדת המפלגה בכנסת בכל נושא, וחבר שיפעל בניגוד לעמדת ההנהגה לא יוכל להתמודד בכנסת הבאה. שלושה ילדים מחורה שבנגב פונו הבוקר לקבלת טיפול רפואי, לאחר שככל הנראה בלעו חומר רעיל. הילדים בגילי 5 עד 10 הובהלו לבית החולים סורוקה בבאר שבע, ומצבם מוגדר יציב. על פי נתוני ארגון בטרם לבטיחות ילדים, בעשור האחרון מתו 16 ילדים בישראל כתוצאה מהרעלה. תחזית מזג האוויר לסוף השבוע, גשמים מקומיים יוסיפו לרדת היום מהצפון עד לנגב הצפוני, והטמפרטורות עדיין נמוכות מהרגיל העונה. מחר הגשמים ייחלשו ויתמקדו במרכז ובצפון. קיים חשש קל משיטפונות בנחלי המזרח. אתר החרמון נפתח הבוקר למבקרים, לאחר שעשרה סנטימטרים של שלג נערמו במפלס התחתון, ועוד חמישה עשר סנטימטרים במפלס העליון. ולזמני כניסת השבת, פרשת שמות בירושלים ב-4 ו-8 דקות, בתל אביב 4.22, בחיפה 4.11 ובבאר שבע ב-4.27 דקות. ולזמני צאת השבת בירושלים 5.24, בתל אביב 5.25, בחיפה 5.23, ובבאר שבע תצא השבת ב-5.27. שבת שלום, אלה החדשות שעורך מרון ששון. Can't get over that every time, and I feel I have to point it out almost every time. We have a state of Israel. We as a people have our own country. We're on the newscast Friday afternoon. The woman reading the news includes the Shabbat candlelighting times for a variety of cities in Israel and includes the Shabbat ending times for that same variety of cities in Israel. Unbelievable. Uh, it, sometimes you have to just think and you have to stop and just think how amazing that is. Hey, bakery guy is out there. He claims to have just made a delivery up to Yeshiva University. Shabbat shalom to you, bakery guy. And may I point out that last night, the Yeshiva University Maccabees, the men's basketball team, a 30-point victory over City College, a record-tying eighth straight victory. Congratulations to Coach Elliot Steinmetz and the entire team. Pretty amazing, huh? Yep, I agree. It is pretty amazing. More coming up. We're in hour number two on a Friday at JM in the AM. Don't forget, if you have not yet supported us during 2018, please show your love and support 
for this great radio show and this wonderful radio network. Go to fjbunity.org, Foundation for Jewish Broadcasting, fjbunity.org, and give generously. Five minutes after 7 o'clock, it's JM in the AM.
oceans and the rivers through every single dawn. No matter what the soldiers said or how the rain would pour, Sadie always kept a smile and wiped the tears away. Nothing could ever keep him down when he'd start to say, "It's Shabbos now, Shabbos now, and we'll sing." Your family and your neighbors It's now your time A blinding steers and broken dreams Papa tries to sell a little more A penny here, a penny there Mama cries and clothes she told My Zadie always kept a smile And wiped her tears away Soon things will turn around Soon we're gonna say It's Shabbos now Shabbos now
J.M. in the A.M. Leif Tahar. Got to be careful uh, with those refer- with that reference these days. Uh, there they are with the Lachad Odi. It's Shabbos now. That's eighth day. And, of course, it's Miro's medley 
from Yankee Lemmer on a JMM Friday morning, 18 minutes after the hour. Good morning, everybody. Thanks, everybody who's commenting on the app. We appreciate that. You can comment on the NSN, Nahum Single Network app for Android and iPhone. Go to the home screen and comment away, as we like to say. I thank everybody tuned in from around the world. I um, I remind you that it's the final Friday of 2018, and those of you out there, especially those of you who tune in to make sure not to miss a minute on Friday morning, uh, do your best to support us as best as you can. Go to the um, go to the um, NSN, go to the fjbunity.org, fjbunity.org website. Be as generous as you can and participate in our 2018 campaign, and we thank you. This will help uh, keep us going for um, yet another year. Uh, all these, all the times during the year that we ask for funding, it is to keep the momentum going and make sure that we have what is necessary to continue to present these great radio broadcasts to you on a daily basis. So whatever you can give, is much appreciated. Be as generous as you can. And, of course, we thank you very, very much. More coming up. It's a JMAM Friday. Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, is going to be joining us 840 Eastern Time. I'll have that for you, uh, well, actually just a few minutes from now. And uh, Rabbi Yudin, of course, on Parsha Shmos as we kick off the second book of the five books of the Torah. It's hard to believe that Bracious has already finished that quickly, but I guess that's what happens, right? And um, and um, we'll wrap things up at 9 o'clock. Naomi Nachman with an encore presentation of Table for Two at 9. At 10 a.m., it's the Arab Shabbos Show brought to you by our friends at Kedem. Big thank you to Mark Zamek for hosting. 1 o'clock, the video blog of uh, Harry Rothenberg on Parsha Shmos. And uh, then, of course, our Arab Shabbos music mix brought to you by the wonderful people at Kedem all the way until candlelighting time. Saturday night, Seagull tomorrow night with Avrami. Matis has JM Sunday, Sunday morning, starting at 7 a.m. Eastern time right here at the Nahum Seagull Network. More coming up. It's JM in the AM. Shan 
J.M. in the A.M. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos. That's uh, Avram Fried, of course. Hineni Biyadcha. And uh, before that one, you heard um, Kapara. Yaakov Shweki with Smechim Simcha Gedola, done by Micha Gammerman. Matis Weingast hosts J.M. Sunday this coming Sunday. Ted Rosenthal, writer and composer of the New York City Opera and National Yiddish Theater, Folkspina. Um... The new production is Dear Eric. It'll open Wednesday, January the 9th. Four performances through Sunday, January the 13th at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Again, Ted Rosenthal, who was inspired to write Dear Eric when he discovered over 200 letters written in Germany between 1938 and 1941 by his grandmother, Herta Rosenthal, to his father, Eric, a Jewish scholar who escaped to the USA. Uh, The play is called Dear Eric. Again, it starts January the 9th. Ted Rosenthal's Matas' guest is coming Sunday morning on JM Sunday here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Malcolm Holmline is next. We'll do our weekly update. Keep it right here at JM in the AM.
Shim Kramer. Kelho, those. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos, JM and the AM, candlelighting in New York at 416. Final Friday of 2018. If you haven't given to our 2018 campaign, please do so today. FJBUnity.org. FJBUnity.org. Shout out to our friends at JewishWorldReview.com. Print out thousands of articles before Shabbos having to do with Israel and the Jewish world. Go to JewishWorldReview.com. And of course, only Simchas.com. Check out their news feed every day. It'll put a smile on your face when you check out their news feed every day. Not just Machot, but great news from around the Jewish world. Check out OnlySimchas.com and enjoy. Um, reminder, full day here today on the Nachum Siegel Network all the way until candlelighting time. And then Matis on Sunday morning speaks with Ted Rosenthal, who is the uh, composer and writer of the brand new New York City Opera National Yiddish Theater production of Dear Eric. That starts on Wednesday, January 9th at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Ted Rosenthal's Matas' guest is coming Sunday morning on JM Sunday right here at the Nahum Siegel Network. That program begins at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays for the weekly update at JM and the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Always a pleasure. Well, Even Even on rainy days. Yeah. <laughs> the big number is out. It's 4919. 499 or as they say in Israel, 9419. It'll be the 9th of April when Israelis go to the polls and election day has been set. It's about 3 months from now. The campaign, if anybody's paying attention, has already begun in earnest. Uh what can we look forward to over the next 3 months, Mr. Honline? Campaigning. And a lot of it. <laughs> and a lot, exactly. Endless. It's, uh, as you know, the Israeli um, political scene is very volatile, and despite the fact that Netanyahu remains the favorite uh, to be prime minister, you know, there are a lot of weaknesses in the numbers that he has. And, you know, you, you traditionally see these flash in a pan candidates who come out with big numbers and predictions that they would get 10, 15, 18, 12 uh, mandates. Um, and in fact, they dissipate over time as the public gets exposed when they have to uh, compete against one another. The real key is whether the a, a significant coalescence of opposition groups you know, we see Benny Gantz, a former chief of staff who, who came out and is now seen as very charismatic. He's just, I, I know him well. He's a very good guy, but he, I don't know that he's charismatic or um, uh, as described, but uh, Benny um, Boogie Alom, the former minister of defense and chief of staff, uh, and Barack, a former minister of defense and prime minister and chief of staff, so the generals are coming out and, and running and right now dominating the coverage. But, you know, that will change with time and uh, people will have to make very serious decisions in the election in Israel right now, given the external and internal uh, challenges uh, will be is a very serious one. Even if people, you know, make light and you see all the jokes that have come out already about it and um there doesn't appear to be an individual around whom everybody uh, will coalesce or or could agree to to a division. It would be more likely a uh, combination of parties that would um, uh, 
uh, you try to form a government if if they can get the numbers necessary to challenge. Right now, Likud still is the number one party. Um, to uh, already, it seems so. And who can blame him? Uh, the prime minister, it seems, is doubling down on the security issue. But again, who can blame him? It's essentially the issue that's won him every election in the past. And you know, some of us on this side of the world. Um, may look at things skeptically, like, you know, the electorate obviously changes, the composition of the electorate uh, obviously changes in Israel, obviously it gets younger, newer voters get into the system, especially a whole four or almost a whole four years later. One would think that these same issues that attracted, uh, you know, the population to a certain candidate back then, years ago, wouldn't be the same today. But in Israel, it's different. In Israel, it all comes down to you know, surviving the next day, literally being protected, having security on the borders and within Israel itself, I guess no one can question or or blame him. I keep using the expression blame him for using that as the number one issue. Well, for one, there are very legitimate and real challenges right now. Um, and the, um, the other issue is the economy. And the fact is that Netanyahu can point to having stabilized uh, the economy. And um, I think that the um, one has to look at the totality of issues and challenges, uh, given what's happening in Syria, what's happening in Lebanon, what's happening in Gaza, what's happening with Iran, what's happening with Turkey, the instability growing out of the Gulf and what happened with Saudi Arabia. Uh, the mercurial relationship sometimes with the United States, even though it remains so strong and, and positive. And the impression is he's the one who deals with all this the best. And that, exactly. that. But he can show that, at least on right. the economic front, while so many countries have gone through very difficult circumstances, uh, they remain, the Israeli economy remains strong. Uh, there are people who may challenge um, aspects of it, but I, I think that they would all agree that it remains very strong right now. And um, so you have the economic issues, but then you also have the corruption issues, the the legal cases against Netanyahu and what happens if an indictment comes down. And there were some exchanges this week regarding the attorney general. Not, not Not just speculation, but reality that this really could be right in the middle of the campaign. Right, and there were some exchanges between Netanyahu and the Attorney General, who's right. his appointee, right. and a wonderful guy. Uh, but they don't like each other. Well, it's become very contentious, I would say. Right. Uh, if someone gets up at a Q&A and, and, and asks you the following general question, is this the best, That is this the strongest Israeli economy in the 70-year history of the country? What do you answer? Israel's economy continues to grow, and it's based on the on the high tech. It's based on um, some steps that Netanyahu, when he was uh, finance minister, took. People credit with him, credit him with it. There are those who um, who would say that uh, you know this is it's it's uh, not as real as it appears. There are still I don't know a half a million people living below the poverty level or more. Uh, many children who go to bed hungry at night, that this is an intolerable situation as well. But the um, overall, look at it, the, the growth continues at a remarkable rate. In that foreign investment continues at a remarkable rate. Tourism reaches new highs. I mean, it just, it, 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 he can point to a lot of successes 
and and uh, the stability of, of economic growth. Uh, unemployment is uh, is very low. Uh, I think that there are a lot of positive signs, and certainly it's the strongest economy in 70 years as Israel matures. And people have predicted, you know, that the startup nation would be a flash in a pan, that you can't sustain it. Right. Well, they've sustained it for a long time, and we see the new startups continuing in uh, massive sales, uh, you know, multi-billion-dollar buys and, and many other companies that go for less. Uh, so right now, that I don't think anybody could say that this is going to stop now. All right, but, so it's, it's no stretch to say it. And, it's and strong... the discovery of oil so it's no... also makes Israel more independent. The fact that they're water independent, the fact that you know more and more countries are, are seeking ties with Israel, and while the BDS step stuff gets a lot of attention, the fact is that African, Asian, and other countries are expanding their ties with Israel all the time. Right. So it is. It, it is hard to argue that today it is not the strongest economy it's ever been, or the strongest. Uh, um, yeah, strongest economy it's, it has been in the seventy-year history of the country, which is unbelievable if you think back. Not just uh, the flash in the pan predictions, but if you think back just twenty, thirty years in terms of the uh, daily struggle of you know keeping up with the economy being completely out of control and inflation being completely out of control in Israel. People in that era would not believe that Israel would have gotten to this point. Now, of course, as we always point out, they're so strong that the leaders of other nations are coming to you know, beg Israel for the technology, their know-how, and to actually buy Israeli companies that are, that are behaving in a very strong economic fashion as well. So the whole thing is just amazing. Uh, what effect will the resignation of Danny Danone from the U.N. have on the Israeli election? Well, it'll have uh, an impact on his election campaign, but uh, I don't think that it'll, it, it is a dramatic impact. He will be a factor in running um, in the in the Likud primary, which will be held at the end of this of month of uh, January. Uh, so we're going to see a lot of people emerge um, in all the parties, by the way, because they'll all hold primaries. Uh, there are people whose uh, names have just come out of people who who are becoming candidates, Olim and others, that'll be very interesting to watch. The question with unknown to me that's bigger is, will will they be able to name a replacement? Because I don't think that while the Knesset is out, they they can appoint a permanent replacement, maybe an interim one, maybe there's a deputy who can take over, but I think that you can't have a vacancy for this longer period in, in a critical time, the United Nations, we also have a new U.S. ambassador. But you can't, meaning you don't recommend it, or you can't, meaning rules of the U.N.? Not U.N., rules of the Israel. Oh, rules of Israel. They wouldn't be right. able to do it. it oh, well, that, I, that's what I was told, but I have to. we have to verify it. The problem is that there's nobody to verify it, but... <laughs> you know, when somebody told me that you can have a meeting of the cabinet in a telephone booth because a defense minister, foreign minister, prime minister, health minister, all, all can get it at one time. Wait a minute. Let me just tell our young listeners what a telephone booth is. Just give me yeah, a second. Right. Uh, yeah, that's pretty funny. I saw a chart on Facebook that outlined, you know, the top positions in, you know, in five countries, for instance. And, you know, obviously every one of the top ten positions are different people and pictures for each country, and you get to Israel with the same picture for all ten. <laughs> so I know exactly what you mean. It's hilarious, frankly. I don't know. Is, is it funny or not? I don't know. You know, there's some people writing that Israel recommended to Donald Trump in Washington to leave Syria. I, I saw a lot of these reports. 
Um, there are people writing now why it's beneficial. Right. Look, time will tell whether any of this is uh, the speculation is true. I doubt very much that Israel suggested that they pull out of this area. Um, some say that this will put the onus on the Turks that they will have to uh, clean up, or the, or the Russians against the Iran. I think a lot of this um, is, uh, is is speculation and an attempt to try to explain or understand what happened and why the decision, which seemed to be a very uh, seemed to be quickly made, although everybody has talked about. Talk, you know, bringing troops home. You're talking about 2,000 troops who played a critical role in blocking the Iranian aspiration to build the corridor through Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, and certainly the supply routes and the question of what happens to the Kurds and with the Turks mobilizing troops on the border. And um, now the Syrian army took uh, Manjib, the, the critical Kurdish uh, city. Um, it, you know, it does shift the onus and and does cause disruption within some of the forces in Syria. Uh, but I doubt very much that Israel at this time wanted to see the U.S., that the message that we send and the message to our allies, the message to our friends, what will happen to Christians, to others in Syria, and the Kurds in particular, who have been the best fighters and, and uh, allies with the U.S. in the war against ISIS in particular. Yeah, and you just mentioned the, uh, you know, obviously this is the week where a lot of people are analyzing the uh the global Christian community, and there are predictions about, literally a prediction that you published in the um, in the Daily Alert, uh, where the Archbishop of Canterbury says Christians are on the brink of extinction in the Middle East. And for those who think that's a dramatic statement, you know, meant to wake people up, I, I don't know if it's as dramatic as it is accurate. Would you agree? Uh, I, yeah, I don't think it's a prediction. I think it's a description. Right. And um, the the it is subject that you know I have discussed here many times yep. and, and elsewhere, trying to call attention to the, the situation of Christians in the Middle East, where thousands are killed every year, maybe tens of thousands, and certainly displaced. The populations, the Christian population of Iraq, is about half of what it was, and other countries as well, Syria certainly, and. And, you know, life for many of them has become much more difficult. There's forced conversion, there's uh, expulsion, there's murder. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, the world takes very little notice uh, of uh, of this. And in regard to other minorities as well, they, you know, we speak up when the Yazidis and many others came under persecution, but you don't see leaders of other religious groups in do, doing what they should in order to call attention to this, uh, I mean, to the tragic plight of these people. Yeah, and, uh, you know, selfishly, one, you know, one might say in terms of Israel and the Jewish people, uh, with the influence that, that Christianity has worldwide, it is likely a good idea for us to do whatever possible to align with them and to, uh, you know, and to help these communities. Um, and that, and as you just said, it's funny how Israel and our community in general you know, reaches out to, to certain either underprivileged or, you know, those communities in need. Threatened. But, but, right, threatened communities. When it comes to the Christians, though, it always seems to be different. It's interesting you point out, unless the impression always is, as, you know, as often we, uh, you know, the, uh, as often is the um, the default in Jewish history that we simply just never look at the Christian community. We know the threatened. Iranians arrested at least 150 Christians right. uh, for Christmas because they don't want to have celebrations and prosecute people in Arab countries for 
having uh, public displays or, or uh, manifestations. Um, I know that in, in Gaza, for instance, the uh, Al-Nasar Salah al-Din brigades, which is the third biggest group uh, after uh, Hamas and uh, Pij, uh, Islamic Jihad, uh, warned people and threatened them, forbidding the celebration of Christmas. And we know that Christmas trees and other things were, were, were desecrated in different places. And they were on arresting all these people, and yet the, the reaction to it is, is minimal. Yeah. It's unbelievable. I mean, we were. Why aren't there demonstrations? Why aren't there people screaming and yelling about um, uh, about about this roundup? And when the Archbishop of Canterbury's uh, comments, uh, he talked about the hundreds of thousands forced from their homes, the the, the numbers that were killed, the churches that were taken over, the um, uh, and the the change in demographics, but they. Um, and, and especially ISIS and other groups, you know, carrying out public executions with minimal uh, outcry. Do you think there's a hesitancy on Israeli and Jewish leadership to speak out on this, or is it more that our impression is that they have a very effective global leadership um, uh, system, and, and therefore the, the the Christians don't need us as much as as some of the more underprivileged groups do? Well, first of all, we have spoken out, and we speak out frequently on the Christian, um, the persecution of Christians. The problem is then people uh, there say, well, see, it's the Jews who are manipulating them. Right. So we don't want to do anything that further endangers them, and so often we'll speak out, but without uh, publicly using uh, the Jewish community name. Or And that might even include Israeli leadership. They would do the same. They'd behave in the same way. With, with restraint, but they have, right. again, they too have spoken out, and right. they have... Uh, reached out, and you know what they did in Syria, uh, but didn't discriminate against Muslims who came for treatment, but particularly there was an outreach to Christian communities, um, and there is aid that goes in to to uh, people, but again, I think it's on a non-discriminatory basis. Uh, yeah, I think the Israelis know that the um, uh, that becoming too vocal could be could backfire. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com, the NahumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. I remind everybody, as you hear this conversation every week with very, very little interruption, uh, that we ask you to sponsor our broadcast and to keep us going. The uh, 2018 campaign, for obvious reasons, is coming to an end on Monday. And we ask if uh, those of you who have not yet contributed this year, please support us as best you can. FJBUnity.org, FJB for Foundation for Jewish Broadcasting, FJBUnity.org. This question comes from a listener, Malcolm. The Jerusalem Post reports that HSBC Bank is divesting from the Israeli company Elbit. Since HSBC operates in New York State and other states with anti-BDS laws, is there anything that you could recommend uh, we do? Uh, to rectify the situation? Well, it is a situation that has occupied me this morning. For some time, I've been in touch with HSBC officials, uh, one in particular who is a good friend and a great person, uh, and uh, unfortunately is traveling, but they did respond and said this is not BDS-related, and I hope by uh, Sunday um, and latest Monday we'll have much more information. Um, it is very disturbing, Regardless, the, 
whether divesting uh, under the guise of response, corporate responsibility, whatever human rights, that Elbit sells drones and drones are used in, in various situations, police, et cetera, and actions. It is the it is one the, um, the declarations by the BDS that this was a victory for them, implying that they were involved. Uh, which may or may not be true. You know, they do take credit for stuff that they, they didn't do, and this could be a corporate decision based on some other considerations. Uh, we don't know how much they actually invested. It's, it's not a divestment from Israel. It's a divestment from a particular company. Right. Nonetheless, it's the cumulative effect of, of um, Airbnb, which we continue to fight and which we will continue. And there was a lot of confusion this week, if I can just Sure. because it's a related question about, mm-hmm. uh, and I've gotten many, about what actually the status with Airbnb is. And the fact is that, that Airbnb officials visited Israel. Um, the minister of tourism with whom they met then issued a statement saying that they were going to rescind the policy. And their local spokesperson in Israel issued a statement to that effect. Uh, and, and Airbnb then said, we never said that. We're not the we're not reversing our policy. We are going to invest in Israel. We want to do more business in Israel, but we have not said that we're going to reverse it. I think that they would like to find some way to climb down uh, and that we should give them uh, as many ladders as possible. But at the same time, they have to be called out for what they did and for for the fact that they are not changing the policy and, and chose in a discriminatory manner one place, one area. And and again, it's not the economic impact so much as it is the precedent that is set. And then people will see HSBC as furthering that precedent, regardless of what their corporate intentions were. And we will clarify all of that and send out information. I sent a memo to all of the organizations yesterday about the Airbnb and clarifying and saying we have to keep the pressure up. We have to have people who use Airbnb call them and tell them we're not going to use it anymore. We need the states that um, have passed BDS legislation to speak out and to let them know that uh, their IPO in the spring, planned public offering by Airbnb, uh, that the states are going to are not going to be able to invest in all the state pension plans, et cetera. The, uh, and HSBC, where many people have accounts and many people do business through HSBC, it's the, I think the seventh largest bank in the world, um, have to let them know what the consequences of this are, even while we're clarifying the facts. And I hope um, that we can provide you and everyone else with the information. You, you know, we have to be careful when running into it because not every press report, as we know, is true. And uh, so we're ascertaining the facts at the same time. HSBC has to hear from us. The media have to hear from us about why this is unacceptable and what this precedent leads to, and that that it is in fact picking uh, one company unless they're you know, listing every company that makes drones in, in the whole world and anybody who makes any other equipment used by uh, police or army uh, forces uh, and used for, for a lot of good, I mean, as well. Uh, drones serve uh, life-saving purposes also. Yeah, of course. So this is, um, as, of, as from the last three hours that I've been working on it, uh, we will hopefully have some more information by Monday. All right, and I'm sure you'll keep us up to date on that. Satellite images of an Iranian weapons storehouse outside Damascus showed significant damage done to the site. Has Israel taken responsibility for these airstrikes? You mean the former Iranian warehouse? Right. In- <laughs> oh, it really was significant, huh? 
<laughs> yeah, they, they did a good job on it. And it was probably a rocket storehouse. Wow. Um, and uh, there was quite a, a lively uh, explosion there. Um, it's not a question of who takes credit. I don't think anybody has much doubt. Uh, and today we've seen continuation of the efforts to to um, close the tunnels. They, a fifth one was discovered that went near an, an Arab village in the north. And the um, today one of the, the tactics used is that they pour liquid cement into the tunnels. And uh, it flooded one of the Lebanese villages because it as it flowed through the tunnel, it came up you know, where, where it began, which is probably under someone's home or in a factory or uh, someplace. And the uh, village, you could see the, the flow of the liquid cement coming out of the tunnel, which uh, highlights where it began. Uh, so Israel is very much engaged in countering the tunnels, trying to discover any others that exist. UNIFIL has not taken on any responsibility to close the tunnels as it should, and no indication that they're going to play a more a fulsome role in living up to their mandate. And so it leaves it to Israel to do it. And uh, obviously the um, events in Syria and that past incident with the uh, Russian plane where Israel is striking is not in the area where the Aleutian plane was flying. Uh, Russia or somebody indicated that two Russian planes were in danger during this. Uh, there's no evidence that that uh, was the case. But where, where Israel is flying in the north is not related to those areas. Obviously, there are restrictions and coordination with the Russians, or at least uh, being sensitive and being careful not to have an incident again um, like the one about a month ago. Um, what was the report that Israel has carried out airstrikes on ISIS in Syria and Sinai? This was, And that's referring to a period of years, correct? I assume so. And th- that was only because, I mean, is this, is this news? Is, this a, is it a surprise that Israel would have uh, done that in those two locations? So um, in the Sinai, it would not be a surprise because Israel and Egypt do cooperate. And remember that the ISIS and related to Hamas, their activities, you know, with weapons flow, uh, Iran supplying weapons via ISIS to Gaza. So th- it could be defensive actions against uh, weapons that are being shipped into Gaza. Uh, also a part of the cooperation with uh, Egypt. And in uh, in Syria, I would say that it would have to be a particular circumstance where they would intercede, maybe because of the to save Kurds who might have been under siege, or that that's the only rationale that I can think of. Israel has enough to do and, and has to be careful with its strikes. Um, fighting ISIS is everybody's interest, certainly Israel's. So it would be, it would not be illogical for those reports to be true. I thought that uh, I thought it was a U.S.-based report that was released by Washington to give confidence to those who were upset they were leaving Syria and that ISIS, you know, would, would still have. It was Israel Khan TV that that released the uh, right. So story. it's not. So it's not a U.S. Uh, source. No, but that would make sense that they were that you know if it did come from Washington, they were trying to you know inject some uh, some hope and optimism that Israel would be there if ISIS would you know at, at any point start up. Uh, that Israel would be there to uh, to protect everybody. That's a good theory, but uh, it didn't, as far as I know, it did not ar- originate and, here. And the strike that I just mentioned uh, in terms of the um, uh, the weapons plant, uh, so there were Hezbollah leaders who were uh, who, who actually were hit during that attack. Well, there there are various reports 
again, it, it, none of them have been substantiated yet, whether uh, Hamas leadership, Hezbollah leadership were targeted. There were some that said that they were getting on a plane, going to Iran, and uh, when Israel struck near the Damascus airport or in that area, uh, but later there were denials. So I don't have any final confirmation on that. So it's not only where. Israel doesn't just concentrate on where they should strike. They also concentrate on when they should strike. Because <laughs> right there, that those reports did come from the U.S. about um, the, the, the DOD, the Department of Defense, said that several leaders of Hezbollah were reportedly hit in that in that strike. Uh, certainly, the ammunition supply points, which we talked about, and where the GPS guided ammunitions um, uh, were were manufactured, but uh, the plant that Netanyahu referred to was closed down by them, not hit by Israel, but um, uh, was destroyed by or abandoned by them because they knew that it was going to be a, uh, that it was a sitting target and that Israel knew about it. And that's when people ask, why does Israel release the information? Because sometimes that then the uh, opposition and enemies do the work for us and they abandon the place. And then it also builds up the local opposition who do not want to, you know, see their their villages leveled, or you know, because you have uh, military installations and missiles and other things in the middle. The Netanyahu trip to Brazil for the presidential inauguration was the first time an Israeli prime minister went to Brazil. I think this is the first official visit, certainly in a long time. Whether wow. it's the first visit ever, it could it could be. I mean, I saw that report, too. It just didn't seem so credible. Yeah, go figure. That, that oh. in all those years. But but remember that, that prime ministers of Israel rarely visited South America at all. Netanyahu's now, I think this is his second or third visit. Right. Uh, and when he visited those other countries, they also said that it was the first visit of a Israeli uh, prime minister. So it could be. Um, and, you know, Brazil is an important country, and they're weighing moving their embassy to Jerusalem. Right. And many of our evangelical friends have been very helpful in this, uh, visiting Brazil and talking to the, the new president, who is an evangelical Christian and very strongly seems to believe in the ties uh, with Israel and moving the embassy. That was a campaign promise, was it? Or it was part of his campaign, right? Was it was. Right. Um, and I know there was hesitation because, obviously, the reaction once he became, uh, once he, uh, became president-elect. Um, all right, so here's the big question, and this might be, uh, you know, uh, w- w- what I've been asked uh, uh, most this week to ask you, and that is, you know, how dangerous, well, you've described the tunnel, fifth tunnel, we understand what's happening up north, we discussed, you know, Israeli action in Syria this week. Uh, we know from all of our previous conversations over the last few weeks what's going on down south, and how the Israeli defense forces are building up, or certainly, at the minimum, keeping a very strong presence on both fronts. With all that in mind, is Israel in, and this is what people have been asking me to ask you, is Israel in a much more vulnerable position because now they're in campaign mode than if they would have, you know, the regular, stable, you know, daily government attention? So obviously that is in everybody's mind, whether the, an election diverts attention. And the fact is that Israel's been in elections other times when you've had um, security threats and situations uh, that um, uh, you know, affecting them. So uh, I think they can walk and chew gum. I think Israel's defense people, uh, infrastructure operates independently of the political and supposed to, and by law it's required to act independently. And so they can sustain that throughout the uh, 
uh, election period. But we, we have to realize, obviously, that people, leaders are, are uh, distracted. And when the prime minister is also the defense minister and the foreign minister, so it's a it's a huge burden. He's very capable, but that's a, a lot to carry in a time when you're in the middle of, a, of an election. Yeah, but I think people are asking an even further question, and that is we've seen in the past, as you remember, of course, uh, that the enemy takes advantage to to remind Israel how vulnerable their security might be during campaigns. And I think that's what what's getting people nervous. Well, that works to Netanyahu's favor, so I'm not sure they want to do things in that favor. We see that in Gaza, there seems to be a de facto ceasefire, right. uh, although you know nobody writes about the fact that, that um, um, and I think the Daily Alert did report it, about the executions that are going on there. They just executed six people, supposedly for collaboration. You don't hear any outcry in the world uh, for that, uh, even though they're signatories to the... Um, the thing about removing the death penalty, the agreement, the international treaty. Um, so, you know, what they do will be more determined, what Hamas and Hezbollah do, by their own internal needs, by what Iran, if Iran wants to step up the pressure and affect the election and do other things, then they can do that through their proxies. But it doesn't appear right now to be in anybody's interest that Hezbollah doesn't want a war, the... the um, I don't think Iran wants to challenge Israel directly, you know, after all these sorties that hit their weapons depot and other things. Uh, and uh, and Hamas, obviously, right now is uh, is looking at this. There's talk of elections in the West Bank, which would probably result right now, according to polls, in a Hamas victory. Uh, and so Abbas has no interest in, in having an election there. There was talk about city council or council elections, other things. Um, but, you know, generally this is all uh, very uh, speculative. So I think that Israel will, can handle the current situation. Uh, and that's why the American announcement, um, anything that contributes to instability, regardless in the long term, as some predict that it'll work to Israel's benefit, the U.S. benefit, the benefit of the situation there, pitting Iran and Turkey and Russians and everybody against each other, um, I think that the instability that, that it introduces or the questions uh, work against the the interests of the of Israel and our allies. And not to belabor the point, you know, security concerns obviously always help the right, but the enemy has nonetheless used the opportunity to to you know to show its strength in past elections. Even though, again, it would likely help you know the side that they'd prefer not be in office. So. Yeah, they don't always operate on rational grounds right. or have their own bonus. <laughs> and also it's because there is internal competition. Right, right. Remember, they, you know, right. Hamas needs to stay in public attention. Uh, they all want to stay in public attention if they are going to, um, you know, to win or to maintain public support. And we see Hamas shifting a lot of its activities towards to the West Bank and increasing the uh, incitement and some of the terrorist attacks that are going on there. Uh, and as we talk about April 9th, Election Day, uh, I mean, I guess the analysis could be that essentially Prime Minister Netanyahu wanted to get away from the, you know, the, 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 uh, the precarious, let's put it that way, relatively precarious situation of October-November, and he also did not want to wait all the way until November, especially with the Attorney General breathing down his neck. So he sort of split the difference. He sort of said, you know, let me get away from from what has, you know, the episode up north, October, November. Let me not get too close to the 
to the likelihood of having um, of having legal problems as we get further into twenty into twenty nineteen. And he sort of split the difference and said, you know what, three months from now would be a good time. Would that, could could that possibly be a uh, uh, an analysis of how he strategically planned this out? Look, it, it, there are many factors: the internal Likud situation, the um, giving more time to opposition to build up. Um, you know, he only moved it up by a few months, so it's right. really not a big difference. And Still then half a year. To the right. fact that this government lasted uh, the majority of its term, which is very unusual. The average Israeli government lasts two and a half years. Um, he, um, I think, I think he he feels that right now he's strongest and waiting can only work against him, and that he said he would like a coalition similar to the one that he has, which is a center-right government. Um, I think that um, you know there were a lot of internal tensions, so he um, probably took all of these things into account in, in setting the date, including the investigations, although I don't know directly how they will be impacted. The uh, Supreme Court, there are people who are saying that they will order him to step down if he's indicted. He right. has said that he will not step down if indicted, <laughs> only if convicted, and the, um, so you could end up with a pretty intense political um, battle. Um, and it's interesting to me is that they did it before Pesach, that they moved it to the beginning of April. Most people thought it would be after. Um, and now you have an extended period. It's, it's four, four months of... Uh, yeah, really three, but yeah, you're right. You know, it's pretty... Well, usually you need three months notice to right. call an election, so this is really not much more. Right. Um, but, you know, they have so many challenges. You know, the Palestinians are going to make a move for statehood again at the U.N. We know that they're doing a lot at the International Criminal Court. We see the the instigations and the um, efforts on so many fronts that require a serious effort. And I, I hope that in the new government there will be a foreign minister and that they will bolster the work of the foreign ministry. Um, and, the uh, you know, now those... Those responsibilities are are divided up into different ministries, and um, you know we have to look at the, the whole Hasbara campaign and the greater efforts on on so many fronts. That uh, while Israel is doing generally well, and uh, we have real challenges here in regard to the public opinion with the new Congress, with a small, very small, but very vocal and I think potentially dangerous element uh, introduced. Uh, who are vehemently anti-Israel, uh, and the, you know the continuing efforts uh, to to undermine the relationship uh, uh, with Israel. Uh, you know the, the Palestinians were appointed to the to the ICC uh, nominations committee for judges. So I mean, if you talk about putting the wolf in the in the in with the hens. I mean, it's ridiculous, and it's not even a state. So. The putting uh, somebody to the advisory committee on nominations uh, is, um, you know, really, uh, it, it is as ridiculous as it is potentially discomforting. Excellent. Uh, Malcolm, thank you so much. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak again in 2019 next week. God willing. <laughs> so the big answer is now we all have to get ready for Pesach. They're going to join us in Puerto ah, Vallarta. Puerto Vallarta. Uh, <laughs> or somewhere, but just think it's not that long. I know. Elections and then... And we sit down to the Seder and discuss the elections. That's right. That's why he did it. (laughs) All right. Have a wonderful Shabbos. There he is, Malcolm Online, Executive Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, Friday morning here 
at JM in the AM. If you have not yet supported us during 2018, please do so. Keep us going. We just did a non-stop, commercial-free 38 minutes with Malcolm Honline that we do every week. And I thank him, by the way. I thank him. He's, you know, pe- people think that we, we hire him to do this. He actually is one of our supporters. So he gets the importance of of this forum and everybody getting together on a Friday to do this. So follow his lead, follow the lead of all of our great sponsors, be a 2018 sponsor. The year ends on Monday, fjbunity.org, fjbunity.org. If you like this kind of programming, believe you me, we, we, we provide amazing programming constantly, fjbunity.org, fjbunity.org. This time each and every Friday, every Erev Shabbos, with great pleasure, we present Rabbi Benjamin Uden, spiritual leader of Congregation Shomrei Torah in Fairlawn, New Jersey, to address the entire listening audience concerning the Torah portion of the week. Good morning, Rabbi Uden. Good morning, Nachum. Good Erev Shabbos, everybody. Tomorrow we have the privilege of beginning the second book of the Torah, Sefer Shmos. We begin with Parsha Shmos, and this Sefer is called Sefer Hagu'ula the book of our redemption. At first glance, it's most understandable. After all, the book begins with the uh, servitude in Mitzrayim, and a few weeks later, we read of Yitzias Mitzrayim. However, the Ramban says, take note that the book could have, should have ended with Parshas Peshalach, with the drowning of the Egyptians, and we are finished with the Egyptians. No, we continue because we need to come to Sinai, as we'll discuss in a moment, and to get the purpose of Yitzias Mitzrayim, which is Kabbalah Satorah. So, let the Torah end with Yisro, the Ten Commandments, and if not with Yisro, at least with Mishpatim, which is the elaboration and extension of Yisro. Not just the Ten Commandments, but all the specific interactions between man and man as well were given at Sinai. Why does the book of redemption not end with the parsha of Mishpatim? Says the Ramban in his introduction to Sefer Shmos that we were not considered nigalim, we were not considered redeemed until we were returned to the status, and what status, ideally, as we're going to be literally returned with Yoshua to to Eretz Yisrael, but when we built the Mishkan, and we were privileged to have His divine presence, the Shekhinah, adorn our sanctuary, that and only then were we considered nigolim. Only then, when we were returned to the status of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, who were the Merkava, the chariot, and were privileged to have God in this world, so too, by building the Mishkan, we brought Hashem's presence into this world, that's when we attained the state of Geula, 
And that's why the book of Shmos does not end until after the five Sidros dealing with the construction of the Mishkan. I'd like to focus for a moment in the beginning of chapter 3, whereby Moshe has the encounter with Hashem at the Sneh, the burning bush. Now, the Eben Ezra, in his commentary on the Torah, says, and I quote, the Kocha Har Sinai Bavur Hasneh. Why is the mountain on which we received the Torah called Har Sinai? A reason that he suggests is because of the Sneh, not just phonetically related Sneh and Sinai, but no, deeper. What happened at the Sneh is Hashem telling Moshe the very purpose of Har Sinai, which is to receive the Torah, and therefore Sinai, when we came to the mountain, this was an implementation of that which occurred at the Sneh, the whole purpose of Hashem choosing Moshe <coughs> to lead B'nai Yisrael at a Mitzrayim is to come to Har Sinai to receive the Torah. Now, I'd like you to take notice of the flow of two psukim, and that is Pasuk 11 and Pasuk 12. Chapter 3, whereby Moshe says to Hashem, as part of his weeks-long struggle and trying to uh, resist the calling from Hashem, as we see later on in the parsha, lest he infringe on his brother Aaron's position. Aaron had been in Mitzrayim all the years that Moshe was gone. Aaron had kept the spirits of the people up, and Moshe did not want to, quote, step on his brother's toes. And it's only until later on that Hashem assures him that that will not happen, that Moshe agrees to accept this most special position. But listen to what Moshe says. Who am I? Who am I? With all due respect. Now we know that Moshe Rabbeinu, as the Torah tells us in the end of Parshas Baaloscha, that Moshe, Boish Moshe, Onov Maod, Mikol Adam, Asher Al Peneu Adama, that Moshe was the most modest man of all that lived on the face of this earth. So now Moshe is asking, Mionochi, who am I? I should be the one to lead B'nai Yisrael, Adam Mitzrayim. So listen to the way the Meshachachma understands the next Pasuk. Vayomer, 
Hashem says to Moshe, Ki imach. I'm going to be with you, Moshe. Don't worry. And this will be the sign. That I have sent you. When you take the people out of Egypt, you will what? Serve God on this mountain. So, at first glance, what does it mean? That this is the ultimate sign. While Hashem gives Moshe temporary signs to tell the people when he first comes and introduces himself as a prophet, and he shows that the staff turns into a uh, snake, and he puts his hand inside and he comes out leprous, and he takes the water and it turns to blood. These are all momentary signs that they should even listen to him, that he's not some kind of a quack. But ultimately, what is Moshe going to tell the people? Look here. We're getting out of Mitzrayim, and we will receive his Torah 50 days later. This is what he told the people, and so, please God, in the future, when uh, you bring them to Sinai, and when the uh, accept the Torah, ah, this will be the sign to substantiate your credentials. This is Pashat Pshat in the Pasuk, says the Meshachachma so sharply. Moshe said, Mionochi, who am I? Meaning, Moshe was saying, truly, I am, come on, I'm a nobody. And I, a nobody, should be the one to take them out of Egypt. So Hashem answers him, Zelechaos, this very point, Moshe, that you have such humility, this per se is the sign that I have sent you. Why? Because I choose to take a person who is an unav. It's that is exactly your one of your strongest features, aside from all Moshe's natural capabilities, his anivus the fact that he was most modest. And if anybody asks, how could it be that Moshe was most modest? So the Meshachachma, as much as says, Ulefi erech godlo elokus, commensurate with Moshe's understanding, spirituality, the fact that he was a roa, a shepherd, had time to contemplate and realized in terms of himself and perspective of God that how much and how little and minuscule he was compared to the greatness of God. Yodea who he knew that what he was Ephes the Ayin. He knew that he was literally, come on, nothing. And the um, Medrash, excuse me, the Meshachachma uses a beautiful analogy and says that Moshe was literally like a candle, listen carefully, compared to a torch. And therefore, the more you know, the more you know that you don't know. And so, just as the Gemara in Megillah, Daf Choftes Amar And most of us believe that the significance of Sinai and the choice of Sinai is a Medrash. That Medrash was, the Sinai was the lowest 
and smallest of the mountains, and therefore, just as Moshe Kibel Torah means Sinai, as Sinai is the low mountain, lowly mountain, so too um, are we to be lowly, etc. Correct. It's a Gemara in Megillah Chavtes Amaralev, 29a, whereby Bar Kapara explains the Pasuk in Tilim, Samach Ches, Pasuk Yud Zayin, Lama, to Ratzdun Horim Gavnunim, why do you literally prance to Ratz, to run mountains of Gavnunim, of high peaks? And Karpora understands it to mean to Ratzdun Tirzudin. Why do you, the other mountains, want a lawsuit with Sinai that Sinai had taken their role that they should, um, Sinai should get the Torah while they are the more loftier mountains. Okay? And therefore, what is the answer? Says Bar Kapara, Kulchem Bale Mumim Atem Eitzel Sinai. You're all blemish compared to Sinai. Why? Because you're all arrogant because of your high stature, and it's only Sinai. And therefore, what does Ravashi teach? Ravashi is the one who, um, come on, is the close redactor of the Talmud. What's the the most, what's the lesson to learn from here? Shema Minoa. One can learn from this, says Ravashi. Haiman Diyohir, the one who's conceited, is Baumumu. He is a blemished person. And therefore, the very powerful lesson of the snap has to be for all of us that we need to work on our anivas, to work on our humility, because unfortunately we live today in a most contentious society. While on the one hand, we should be respectful, realizing that we're living in such special times. We have Eretz Yisrael. Hashem is literally giving us a divine wink, showing us of His special relationship with us, and instead, unfortunately, we are arrogant. We say, we have it. Our grandparents didn't have it. Our great-grandparents didn't have it. And so, unfortunately, we live in a time where there's gaiva. I'm right, and you're wrong. And there is this very strong need today for us to return to the snare as we start the second book of the Torah. We have to appreciate how who is at the center of our universe. If man is at the center, me, look what I've accomplished, look how I am right, and therefore you are wrong, unfortunately, there can never be that achdos of Ayichan Shom Yisrael, Negerahar, Ish Echod, Echod, a united people. What can, does, and will unite Am Yisrael is when each and every one of us takes that opportunity to reflect upon, like Moshe Rabbeinu, how we are a candle compared to that torch 
before HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and that in of itself should fill us with that great sense of humility. And as the Rambam writes in chapter 2 of Hilchos Deos, that the prerequisite for getting closer to Hashem is through one's humility. And the Torah doesn't say that Moshe was modest. Ve'ish Moshe anav ma'od. He was very modest. This is a charge to each and every one of us. So that just as in Bereshis, there were no Bible stories, there were only Bible lessons, so too in the beginning of the book of Shmos, there are no stories of Moshe at a snap. It's there to teach us a very important Bible lesson. And as Moshe is getting the troops ready for Kabbalah Torah, and the troops are not only those in his day, but the troops are, thank God, each and every one of us, we too have to learn that juxtaposition that Hashem says to Moshe, V'zeh l'cha'os, it is just your humility of me onochi, this is what's going to show the people that you are the one that I have chosen. Not only our Kabbalah Satora, but the prerequisite of Kabbalah Satora is Moshe's very question of me onochi, and therefore I pray that as the Rambam writes in chapter 7 of Ilchos Tshuva, that each and every one of us has the capacity to be like Moshe. It means each one to fill their potential of attaining true humility. Shabbat Shalom to all.
Shalom Aleichem, Malachi Ashores, Malachi Elyoi, Miyimelech, Malachi Hamlochim, Akodosh Bovoruchu, Shalom Aleichem, Malachi Ashores,
J.M. in the A.M. Don't forget to support our 2018 campaign. It ends Monday, fjbunity.org. Keep us going, everybody, fjbunity.org, fjbunity.org. Shalom Aleichem, of course, from Avraham, let's Avram Freed. Before that, the Shira Chadasha Boys Choir, Kel Adon. Candlelighting at 416 in New York as we get set for a wonderful Shabbos, Erev Shabbos, Parsha Shmos, final Shabbos of 2018. Hope you're doing well no matter where around the world you are. Feel free to comment on our app. Go to the NSN, Nachum Single Network app for Android and iPhone, and comment away. On Sunday, Matis presents JM Sunday, and Ted Rosenthal, writer and composer of the New York City Opera and National Yiddish Theater. Uh, the new production of Dear Eric will open Wednesday, January the 9th at um, the Museum of Jewish Heritage. And Ted Rosenthal was inspired to write Dear Eric when he discovered over 200 letters written in Germany between 38 and 41 by his grandmother to his father a Jewish scholar who escaped to the U.S. It's called Dear Eric. It starts January 9th. Matis speaks with Ted Rosenthal this coming Sunday morning on JM Sunday, which begins 7 a.m. Eastern time. Make sure to be tuned in. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's uh, Naomi Nachman, encore presentation of Table for Two. At 10 o'clock, it's the uh, Kedem presentation of the Arab Shabbos show with Mark Zamek. 1 o'clock, the Harry Rothenberg video blog for Parsha Shmos. After that, our amazing Erev Shabbos music mix brought to you by the wonderful people at Kedem, and that's all the way until candlelighting time. Tomorrow night, Saturday night, Siegel with Avrami and Rabbi Eliezer Zwickler. And on uh, Monday, on Monday, on Sunday morning, it's Matis with JM Sunday, as we said, starting at 7 a.m. Eastern time. Monday, final day of 2018, I am scheduled to be right here at JM in the a.m., so make sure to be tuned in. We'll ask everyone to do their final contributions for the year. Keep us in mind over the weekend. If you have friends, recommend fjbunity.org, an amazing website and an amazing cause to give to, to get a tax deduction to close out the year. Again, it's fjbunity.org. If you would share that with your friends on Facebook, if you would mention it to people who you know would like to support our amazing work, uh, that would be wonderful. So please uh, do whatever is necessary to help us out over the next couple of days. Again, the 2018 campaign, for obvious reasons, ends on Monday. FJBUnity.org. Candlelighting at 416 here in New York. I thank everybody for tuning in and being part of this amazing radio experience. Check out our community calendar online. Community calendar uh, is at NahumSiegel.com slash community calendar. NahumSiegel.com slash community calendar. You'll see that as one of the tabs on our website. So you can check that out. And um, uh, next week, even with the legal holiday on Monday, we are here every day next week, Monday through Friday with JM and the AM starting at 6 a.m. I certainly hope you will be part of the action. Time to say good job is with Journeys at JM and the AM.
Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at AlchemSiegel.com. The AlchemSiegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Wraps up an amazing week for us here on a Friday at JM in the AM. Naomi Nachman next, full schedule, of course, all day long, as we've been mentioning. And um, oh, full schedule all day long. 
all weekend long. Matas with JM Sunday on Sunday morning at 7 a.m. I'm back 6 a.m. Monday morning. Make sure to be tuned in here at JM in the AM. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Great weekend, everybody. Till Monday, Nachum Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future. <laughs>